Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenore Walters and joining me today are Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and special guest Tim Stubbs, Independent Investment Consultant at TS Investments. An area that hasn't been popular with investors has been Europe, for reasons including debt problems and more recently political risks with a number of elections due this year. This has translated into substantial outflows from European equity funds. But Emma, you've been looking at this area and it seems that investors have been making the wrong move. Why? Well, investors need to remember, Leonora, that companies are not the economy or politics of a country. And of course, with Europe, we've got a huge number of different countries within that. And within all those countries, there are many companies that have proved their resilience since the financial crisis and have been able to keep growing despite all the political and economic difficulties. So that's the reason why it might pay to actually look at the hidden opportunities in this area. Okay. Now, you're saying um, companies aren't the economy. So what's a good example of um, one of these resilient companies? Well, one of the managers we spoke to mentioned a company called Amadeus, which is a Spanish company that provides IT solutions. It's been able to continue growing well by improving its efficiency and reducing costs for new technology. And there's an option for many other companies in that can operate in a similar sort of way. So that's just one example of a company that's doing well despite the difficulties at the political level. Okay, so companies getting strong, companies are resilient, but really important question for investors here, what about their valuations? Well, across the region, valuations look relatively cheap, especially compared to other more expensive areas. And the one that we kept um, hearing from analysts was the US, which is looking very expensive. So valuations are reasonable in, in this area. OK, so you're better than US for developed market exposure. Definitely. OK, now you did say that companies are not the economy, but we can't ignore it, can we? No, so what's the economic backdrop looking like in continental Europe? Well, the thing about this is that the economic backdrop is actually starting to pick up. So we've had a number of of data that suggest this recently. For example, unemployment has fallen to its lowest level since May 2009. The Eurozone PMI manufacturing survey hit its highest level um, since 2011 recently, and it's now at 54.4%. Um, Anything over 50 is an expansion, so that's good. And inflation has also started to pick up, considering that just a few months ago, people were talking about deflation as a very real possibility um, in Europe. That's also positive news. Okay, that sounds good too. But what about these risks that investors have been fretting over? Well, it's understandable because there are a lot of them. I mean, there's still worries about the euro, um, as you mentioned, debt crisis, Greece being the big one. And these are all sort of hangovers from the global financial crisis. And they're still, you know, sort of issues to consider. But there are also a number of, of new concerns, mostly around the rise of populism. And considering that we have a number of elections this year in France, Germany and the Netherlands, um, and possibly even Italy, Markets have been threatened about uh, the possibility of far-right candidates like France's um, Marine Le Pen clinching victory and what that would mean for the European Union more widely and the euro currency more generally. So it is understandable that investors are concerned about these issues. Okay, so uh, companies looking good, but obviously possible market volatility ahead. Tim, do you think European equities offer potential and are they good value? Well, for me, European stocks are broadly trading at similar valuations to the UK, Japan, and the developed Asia-Pacific region. 
um, notwithstanding troubled periphery countries such as Italy. Uh, so for me, um, European equities generally are not cheap enough. The reason for that is I know uh, we, we've said that um, Eurozone, the economy is not the same as the stock market and so on. But the Eurozone structurally has been stuck in first gear for, for the best part of 20 years. And I cannot see this changing so long as the Eurozone structure exists. Um, it's simply a square peg in a round hole and politicians don't seem capable or willing to, to solve their own problems. So although, yes, the short-term improvement in the economic data is coming through, which is a good sign, um, for me, the most important factor is the, um, the long-term outlook. And there are big risks overhanging. So although, yes, multinationals are resilient, for example, the Italian market is, is trading at a discount and Greece had problems too. So effectively, it's a case of um, if and when problems come, you know, things will still get hit to a large extent. So given that valuations are broadly similar to the other regions, of course, not the US, then I prefer to have an indirect exposure to the Eurozone via global managers rather than a direct exposure at this stage. Okay. Can you elaborate a bit on these risks to European equities? Obviously, don't think the rewards outweigh them. Maybe you think there's a few. What, what do you see of the few worst ones, things that are turning you away from Europe? Yeah, well, the, the biggest one, of course, is the, the big elephant in the room that, um, that the Eurozone ultimately disintegrates at some point, which isn't really considered a realistic, um, it's considered an outside chance in the marketplace at this stage, whereas I think personally that at some point, the timing is very unclear, at some point, I would imagine it would have to happen because the parts simply don't fit. You know, the voting system ensures that the, the voters will never, the politicians will not introduce long-term changes that are necessary. Um, and you're just lurching from one problem to the next as you kick the can down the road. And we've already seen that even if growth does pick up, which would be very good and very welcome, the long-term structural rates of GDP growth are well below, for example, that of the US and the UK. So I think the last 20 years have, have kind of demonstrated that it was never an economic project, it was a political one. But now it's starting to become unpopular, which potentially could be a turning point. We've had Brexit, obviously the election, the you know, populist candidates are, are having, I suppose, greater time in the limelight and have a realistic chance of, of winning votes. So the bigger picture really is, um, you know, the, the whole intention of the Eurozone and the EU was to avoid the risk of war amongst European nations in particular. But my concern is that we're actually heading more into that direction as tensions are rising effectively with Germany. It's almost like a game of monopoly where all the money's kind of going into Germany's pockets, which is obviously um, it's not liked at all. So really, that's the kind of, I know I'm discussing the, the ultimate worst-case mm. risk, but albeit in the long run, that yeah. would probably, in my view, be healthy. But again, I guess being in the epicentre of that is um, something... Is, in other words, it's like there's a big downside risk potentially attached to the Eurozone more than, say... Well, obviously, others have got risk too, but that risk is potentially very large relative to, say, the other regions on similar valuations, in my view. Okay. Now, you did mention that you still retain some Europe exposure via global equity funds. Um, mm. Which global equity funds do you like? Mm. Uh, well, global equity funds, I mean, at this juncture, um, I generally consider equities to be um, richly valued. Um, there's a lot of short-term, oh, I suppose I don't know if euphoria is the right word yet. I don't know if it's that strong, but it's um, certainly the US market's trading on a um, 
rich valuations and any any disappointment um, could have an impact there. So funds that, that I like generally um, are those that, that try to, I suppose, capture asymmetric qualities to, um, I suppose, preserve capital in a in a in a downward market. So, so one fund in particular is the Veritas Global Focus Fund, which um, tries to do such things. There are European exposures in there. Yeah, so I guess funds that can effectively capture longer-term thematic drivers um, and have downside um, capture um, are those that can those that I prefer really at this point in the, the stock market cycle. Okay, an example being Veritas Global Focus. Okay, yeah. now um, Emma, obviously we've been looking at the bear case for Europe, but um, you know, obviously some people think that there are potential rewards that outweigh the risks. So if you want to get exposure to these rewards, what Europe funds could you consider? Um, well, the analysts we spoke to mentioned a number. These include Henderson European Focus, which has achieved good five-year results, 103% over five years. It has an ongoing charge of 085 Another example could be Investco Perpetual European Equity Income. It returned a similar sort of level, 104%. And it's also got a very similar ongoing charge, 0.89. Jupiter European returned good levels of 107% over five years. And it's got a slightly higher ongoing charge at 1%. So, I mean, there's more examples in the magazine, but there are definitely lots of good European funds in this in this space. Okay, thank you Emma and Tim and uh, as Emma said, do look at our article in this week's magazine on the website to see our full list of Europe fund suggestions. Now in an area that investors have been very keen on lately is commodities. Asset manager ETF Securities reported inflows of $58.5 million, that's about £47 million, into broad commodity exchange-traded products, ETPs for short, um, just over January, the highest level in eight months. And following the launch of Source Bloomberg Commodity Usage ETF on the 16th of January, an investor rush meant that by the 6th of February, it had accumulated inflows of about 740 million, making it the fastest growing European ETF of the past five years. Tim, these are big numbers here. Why are investors suddenly so keen on commodities? Yeah, well, uh, a certain Donald Trump in particular is um, <laughs> largely behind some euphoria here. Um, yeah, so so effectively, not only have we seen global, I guess, global econo- economies driven by the US uh, and uh, picking up in the last, say, six months or so, uh, and uh, as uh, Emma mentioned, the eurozone showing signs of this. There are positive noises starting to develop um, in, in Japan potentially. Um, so very simply, economies were picking up. Um, that's good for demand for raw materials as industrial and economic activity increases. But then when, when Donald Trump became elected, then suddenly you've got the, the taps to open fiscal policy. So his infrastructure spending plans, for example, would result in very large demand for metals, raw materials, and all commodities needed to, to get, get building in that sense. So, yeah, so it's a combination, really, of cyclical um, stage of the economy picking up and then a, a big stimulus, big um, big push by Trump, really. So in the short term, um, whether that's yes, a, year to, a year or two, possibly a touch more, you, you can see that there will be physical demand for, for commodities. So that's 
that really explains much of the flow, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, those are rational reasons, but the point is, you did hint at the next year or two, not necessarily the long term. So, do you think it's a good idea to allocate commodities at the moment? I do, uh, but very selectively, and I'll, I'll touch upon that after. Um, inflationary trends are picking up. This is a, a global phenomenon. Of course, we'll see the debate to which, um, I guess, classic um, deflationary forces from the internet and the like are, are permanent versus, um, versus, I guess, more cyclical forces. But inflation certainly is showing signs of picking up. So that's, that's, um, that will be beneficial for commodities. Fiscal policy, governments are coming to realise that monetary policy, QE, uh, potentially is reaching the end of its or reaching its limits. So attention is now turning to fiscal policy. So governments will be embarking on infrastructure spending plans and cutting taxes, which with the aim of stimulating global economic growth. So so yes, there's certainly a near-term driver there. Um, The bigger picture, though, in my opinion, uh, is that Global debt levels are very elevated in the world. And if you look at long-term history, and I'm talking thousands of years, you'll see that governments, whenever there are very high debts, will typically debase the currency rather than grow out of of the debt. So in in that scenario, and I don't think today is any different, eventually debasing might come via inflation, which means real assets, including commodities, but crucially um, commodity stocks, I prefer, real assets would capture these long-term inflation trends if that comes to pass. Okay. Now, the area that investors have been particularly rushing into to get exposure to commodities, whether they're right or wrong, are commodities exchange-traded products, basically passive funds listed on stock markets, things like ETFs and ETCs. Do you think that these exchange-traded products, or ETPs for short, are a good way for investors to get exposure to commodities? I personally don't, certainly starting with a long-term perspective. So if you look at long-term financial market history, physical commodities actually make negligible or even negative real returns um, after inflation, depending on the time periods measured. To visualize why that is, just just think of cars. Um, In the last 15 to 20 years, cars have effectively become twice as efficient. You you need um, half as much fuel to to drive the same distance. Um, it's through technology and, and progress. So generally speaking, technology and human progress outweighs, I suppose, humans are smarter than always find a more efficient way to use the, the natural resource. So it's said that if you're long commodities, you're, you're short human innovation and progress. So I don't believe that, you know, short-term trends notwithstanding, um, but I generally am longer-term in nature, I prefer to avoid investing in underlying physical commodities. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'd leave that to the specialist commodity traders. I think there are other ways to to play the commodity um, theme instead. Okay, so how would you play the commodity theme? I think it's um, it's like it's like in the old gold rushes. Um, it was those who sold the shovels that were making the money. Um, so, translated into um, commodity space for this conversation. Um, my view is that commodity stocks would be a better bet than the commodities themselves. So historically, commodity stocks make, um, which I, what I mean by that is the producers of commodities. So, so basically mining shares. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So it could be mining, it could be oil and gas, it could be 
agricultural firms, etc. Um, but historically, these companies um, have made returns in line with global equity, so roughly 8% per annum. Um, they also have the advantage of having lower correlation in wider equity markets generally, um, which acts as a diversifier. And I'll explain the logic here. Mm. If you imagine electricity prices going up, um, this is good for your energy suppliers as their revenues will rise. But this is broadly bad for the rest of most of the economy, those who are not benefiting, uh, and therefore global stocks, and vice versa. If energy prices come down, it's a general, it's like a, a, a stimulus, like a tax cut for, for the global economy. Um, generally speaking, of course, there'll be winners and losers. So that shows the kind of offset factor and explains why in the near term there can be kind of negative correlation benefits to adding commodity stocks to a portfolio in the right portion. But then in the long run, of course, all these companies make money, both the commodity stocks and also wider multinationals generally who are you know, stock markets. That's how I prefer to play commodities, really. Yeah. So um, which funds would you suggest for getting exposure to commodity stocks? Um, one fund that's, that's, that I like is the BlackRock Natural Resources Growth and Income Fund. Um, it's split broadly evenly between metals and mining, energy and agriculture. So it's pretty, I guess, almost like an equal weighted way to gain exposure to these funds. Of course, you can select other funds to um, take, it, it, I suppose, more concentrated exposures on different subtypes. But I, I find that fund, the, the track record's been, been very good, very consistent, consistently above average, not blowing the lights out, um, quietly doing its thing. And um, so that's, that's the fund I prefer at this stage. Okay, thank you, Tim. Um, some important things to consider if you're tempted to invest in commodities. And you can also read more about how Source Bloomberg Commodity Use at CTF works in this week's magazine and the website. Another area investors have been finding favour with is value stocks and some of the funds which invest in value stocks. Tim, we've heard an awful lot about so-called value stocks and value investing over the past few months. And what exactly do people mean by value? Well, put very simply, value investing means buying the cheapest stocks in the in the marketplace. Um, so in terms of valuation metrics, these shares will often be amongst the cheapest relative to their earnings, so low PE, and relative to the book, the assets of the firm, so um, low price to book. There'll normally be a reason for this. Um, many of these stocks will be troubled, hated companies. Um, they probably would have suffered often big share price falls. Prospects may generally look bleak, and it's hard to see through the, the fog of the next year or two or three, let's say. But given the prices are so cheap, the trick is that if you can buy with a price that's very cheap compared to your, the prospects of the stock, even if these are bad, um, money can still be made. And there's one very good example here. The Schroeder's global, ISF Global Recovery Fund, around this time last year, was highlighting Anglo-American as one of the stocks they were favouring. It was trading mm, so it's a mining share, of that, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So it was trading at roughly one-third of the value of the firm's assets. So put very simply... If the share price were a pound, um, I'm not saying it were a pound, it's, it's a different value, You'd, the, the assets of the company were worth three pounds. So theoretically, that tells you the market is assuming that two thirds of the value of the company is going to be destroyed in future years. Effectively, the company's near game over. As it happens, of course, this was a cyclical company close to the bottom of the cycle. So expectations were, were rock bottom. Um, but critically, if you have 
long-term reasons to believe that you know we're just part of a cycle and there's value in this company, then any recovery could be disproportionately large. And to illustrate how the stock's done in the year since, um, I'm not sure, but you'll um, you'll understand the answer here. I'm not sure whether it's gone up four times or five times, okay. <laughs> four or five fold on your investment. So that is the ultimate example, I guess, of finding a very cheap stock that has a recovery potential. Okay, so basically, value investing is bargain hunting. Um, issue here yeah. is when you go to a shop or a stock market or anywhere else, things are cheap and sometimes they're cheap because they're awful. How can you not be sure things are awful? Mm-hmm. And what would you say are the risks of value investing? Yes, I mean, that, that's very true that individually these stocks will be cheap for a reason. The companies will come with baggage. I say short-term concerns, you know, it could be that the next one, two, three years outlook for the firm, its business model or an industry could be very bad. Some will be value traps that will ultimately never really recover. And performance of these stocks can be very volatile indeed and they can perform for extended periods. I mean, the value value stocks relative to growth stocks underperformed for 10 years despite in the long run value outperforming. And they can get even cheaper. Um, value investors typically buy too early. But the way to counter this really is that if you build a diversified portfolio, then typically these risks get offset. You don't need to get every every call correct. In the long run, I mean, if you if you develop a portfolio of very cheap stocks diversified across industry and, and so on and geographic, geographically, generally speaking, the stock-specific risk will fade down and then you'll be capturing the risk premium, the, the extra reward, let's say, for buying cheap. So it's very much a... You need to go in. Uh, you need to be diversified here, and you also need to have a long-term mindset because it's not. You know, it's quite typical to underperform for years, and you can underperform by a lot while you're waiting for things to pick up. Okay, so a risky area, but um, in view of possible rewards, do you think investors should turn to this style and this area if they haven't done so already? I definitely think they should. In the long run, value investing has outperformed, and. The concept's really quite simple. You buy low. Um, if you buy high, you're making it, you're giving yourself a far greater hurdle to, to, to jump over. Something I always try to keep in the back of my mind is, um, I guess, a saying that you, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. It's like if you go to an auction place to buy a property, let's say, a rock-bottom price. Well, as long as you can hang on for you know, long-term periods and you can repair any structural faults, you're typically rewarded. So, yeah, I think as well there's a kind of asymmetrical quality where if, if something's incredibly cheap, the example of Anglo-American that I referred to just now. Mm, I mean, the mining so share, cheap, yeah. Exactly right, yeah. So it could be that if something's so cheap, there's only so far it can fall. Um, but suddenly if if a terrible outlook, and the, the thing about these is when you go to meet the fund managers of value, deep value funds, it's like a horror story. You're listening to all the companies that have, have mm. had big big problems. So it's, it's a hard sell, I guess, to investors who uh, have a problem with that. It's news flows. It's weak. Um, but in the long run, this, this risk tends to pay off. Um, and short-term, tactically, um, the value style has has now been outperforming growth. Um, there's been a market, uh, market rotations in the last year or so. So as well as in the long run, there are short-term signs that this area might be Coming back to the now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So those sound like good signs. And for people who, let's say, have the long-term time horizon, high-risk appetite, which funds would you suggest? You mentioned there was a Schroeder's fund. Are there any others yeah. that you like? 
Um, yes, there are. I'll I'll start with Schroders. They're a they're a house that have a good team working on value, Nick, led by Nick Garage and, and Kevin Murphy. They've got a UK fund called Schroder Recovery. There's an income fund they run too, which is similar but with an income um, yield of roughly four percent. Yeah, is that that Schroder Income? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the Jupiter UK Special Situation Fund, run by Ben Whitmore, is mm. another very good fund, in my opinion. That's in the UK space. If you're yep. looking globally in developed markets, the Vanguard Global Value Factor ETF is one that I like. It's um, it has a 40% exposure to financials, um, but the country weights are similar to the MSCI um, index. So the US is roughly 60 odd percent. So in a, in a sense, you can have a very diversified um, exposure globally. There are around 1,200 companies in the ETF. Um, and it's it's priced at about 22 basis points, I believe, um, annual management um, charges. If you want emerging market space, a fund that is positioned in I guess, value and cyclical space right now is the Artemis Global Emerging Markets Fund. It's not a permanent value fund, but it adopts smart GARP methodology. That's the, the name of the methodology they use, um, effectively a stock screening tool. And they are identifying value in cyclical stocks in emerging space as the most attractive and that fund has been doing very well over the last uh, over the last year or so okay. and so there are um, there are global funds available um, but one thing that is notable is because value has underperformed so much over the last decade and been out of fashion as you'd expect many of the fund providers haven't been marketing those funds so there there aren't actually as many as you you'd think there would be Okay. Despite the long-term results. Yeah, but some interesting suggestions there for people to look at. Now, we've actually been looking at another value fund, which has been um, focused on value in this week's magazine, and that's British Empire Trust. Emma, how's this fund been performing? Well, um, British Empire Trust spent most of the past five years languishing at the bottom of the Association of Investment Companies global sector. But at the start of 2016, the trust share price rocketed. It ended the calendar year up 42%, and that's compared to 25% by the MSCI World Index. So it's doing well. And that's in stark contrast to 2015, when it lost 8% compared to the index, which gained 7%. So performance looking good right now. Yeah, okay, some volatility, but some great numbers over the past year. Now, this turnaround, is it simply because of the market rotation we've been talking about? Well, it certainly had an effect that, you know, as we've been talking about, the market has started to flock back to these cheap, unloved stocks. But the manager says that the performance has also been helped by a drastic cut in the number of stocks the trust holds. So at the start of when he took over last year, there were 40 holdings. And today that's dropped down to 29, 25 of which are coal holdings. So that's a that's a big drop. And he thinks that by selling down in some holdings, he's been able to move into areas that have, have performed better. As we've been talking about things like commodities and oil. OK. Now, which of the shares remaining in British Empire's portfolio did particularly well last year? Well, one example is Norway-listed industrial investment company, Aker Asa. It was the trust's biggest holding in 2016 and a big performer. It has assets in the oil services sector. And so, as we know, the oil price coming back, that it did very well. 
and it added 5.96%, so almost 6% to the net asset value for the trust last year. Okay, some impressive numbers again. Thank you, Emma. And you can read our interview with Joe Bowenfriend, manager of British Empire Trust in this week's magazine and the website. That's all we've got time for today, so it just remains to thank Emma Adjumang, personal finance writer at Investors Chronicle, and Tim Stubbs, independent investment consultant at TS Investments. You can read more on the case for European equities, commodities funds and British Empire Trust in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.